Machine. We're excited to be back for our eighth episode, all about space. All three of our facts in this episode will pertain to the expanse that exists beyond the Earth and between celestial bodies, humanity's exploration of this expanse, and how, throughout our history, we've reached up to touch the face of God, and having touched it, how we've looked back at Earth and learned that much more about our home. As always, our facts will be followed by a pub-style trivia quiz inspired by the theme. And with that, Emily, take it away. This week I learned that while we can't actually see the Great Wall of China from space, we can see something much cooler. What? What's that? Penguin shit! Oh, nice! (laughs) (laughs) We're we're expecting that, were ya? The excitement with which you said that was so... All right, please tell us like, about... You're like at a party, and the guy's like, go tell your mom this. And you're just grinning ear to ear, like, hey mom! Penguin shit! <laughs> what kind of parties were your parents throwing? <laughs> okay, Emily, tell us why it's exciting to be able to see penguin poop from space. I shall. Though I will say before I get into it much further, um, I think it's worthwhile to actually delineate what space is, or rather where it starts. So although outer space doesn't have a definite scientific altitude, for diplomatic and space law-related reasons, uh, the Kármán line, which is the boundary between the Earth's atmosphere and space, set by the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, Eh. Um, eh, maybe getting better probably not Um, is set at 62 miles above the earth's surface which honestly was closer than I expected but above that there are multiple tiers of orbit defined by their distance from the earth which are then themselves inhabited by various satellites so to give some examples in low orbit we have the International Space Station that's about 250 miles away Uh, the Hubble telescope is 340 miles and then uh, the Landsat satellites that capture images for Google Earth and Google Maps are at 440 miles above the Earth's surface. And then beyond that, you have medium orbit, which is inhabited by GPS satellites, and high orbit, which starts about 22,000 miles above the Earth's surface and contains geosynchronous satellites, so-called because their orbits keep pace with the Earth's rotation. Um, So examples of these are weather tracking satellites sent up by NOAA, not this NOAA. Uh, (laughs) Oh, sorry to bring it to you. Uh, So point being, space is closer than we think, or at least than I thought. But for the sake of this segment, when I refer to space, I'm referring to low orbit, where Earth's paparazzi satellites hang out. Uh, So my fact comes from the work of a few groups of scientists who have used satellite images of penguin poop, or guano, if you want to be all fancy about it, to (laughs) track the migration patterns and monitor population dynamics of various species of penguins. Um, This is possible because, as you'd imagine, their skid marks stand out pretty distinctly (laughs) against the snowy background. I don't know if that's a fair characterization. There. I'm just picturing a penguin sitting on the top of a hill, sliding. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I haven't researched far enough to know whether that's how it actually goes, but I can't contest it. That's I mean, all I'm going to say. It's so much more than skid marks, though, because it's, I mean, it's a massive plane of shit. 
Yeah. Because they're just, I mean, there's a lot of them, and the back, the surface is white, and so the contrast is really yeah. high. And they just poop everywhere. Yeah. There's actually like one species I was reading about them. that purposefully does that to kind of increase the temperature of the land they want oh. to occupy and nest within. So, yeah, when you look at pictures of this, it's just swaths of land that are, you know, shit colored. <laughs> um, <laughs> But what surprised me the most about this is that scientists can actually get a lot of information from these images um, by noting specific signatures of the poop, so including color, shape, and They write their name in it, too. (laughs) (laughs) These things are gross. They know shame. (laughs) Oh, but... Uh, so yeah, based on those signatures, scientists have been able to write algorithms that can deduce the penguins' ages, their species, and even identify colonies of related seabirds, like skuas and petrels. Um, so as ridiculous as this sounds, this technology has actually been hugely helpful to conservation efforts, most notably in that it's allowed us to keep an eye on how penguin populations and breeding trends respond to habitat-altering influences like overfishing and climate change. And that sounds really abysmal. But in a spot of good news, one really exciting discovery to come from this technology is that a so-called super colony, so in the span of hundreds to thousands of Adelie penguins, um, were found on a set of remote islands north of the Antarctic Peninsula this past March. Um, This is exciting because before this, we had seen another colony suffer a mass starvation in the years leading up. So we actually thought that they were going extinct, but we found them. Great. Thanks to this. So, Wait, we no. found them. And this is an anagram of shit. Hey! <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wait, so we found them based on the poop? Yeah. Like the satellites didn't see them getting out of the water, taking the poop, and getting back in? <laughs> they just saw the poop? Well, the poop sticks <laughs> around mean, longer. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it like the satellite goes by and they all get out and like, quick, everybody take a shit. <laughs> and then they jump back <laughs> in the water. <laughs> Straight on these islands. How do we let them know we're here? <laughs> oh, and they wrote it out like <laughs> SOS and poop. Yes, they did actually confirm that there were penguins there and not just a pile of shit by sending in drones, actually. <laughs> so. oh. They shouldn't have sent in drones, they should have sent in a modium. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true though. Like, if they're going to be swimming around a lot, if you ever go scuba diving, you're supposed to take a modium. Really? Yeah, so you don't poop in the suit. You don't want to come back up. (laughs) (laughs) I bet bet Neil Armstrong did it too when he was going out on the moon. And he was like, I really don't want to have to come back in. All right. (laughs) Definitely hang on to that thought. Yes. (laughs) That will return to this. This is what people tune in to learn. (laughs) Some life hacks from Facts Machine Podcast. (laughs) So... um, so there is some good news. Uh, also, to you guys and to our listeners, if they're interested in this, um, if you think you'd be a diligent eagle-eyed, or I guess penguin-eyed, uh, dutiful uh. penguin spotter, <laughs> you can actually uh, participate in these efforts yourself um, through the Mapping Application for Penguin Populations and Projected Dynamics, or Mapapada for short. <laughs> <laughs> which lets you scan satellite images on Google Earth uh, for these serendipitous marks and find penguins yourself. So you can go to penguinmap.com for more info on this. Penguin map and not crap map app? (laughs) (laughs) Missed opportunity. (laughs) I have a few things on poop, if no one objects. I'm a big fan of the American Museum of Natural History in New York has a science cafe, sci-cafe series. That's the first Wednesday of most months. And I go whenever I can. It's a, it's a little happy hour they have in the uh, planetarium. 
Uh, very few of the talks are actually about space. But I thought it was nice that in the planetarium this January, there was a, a talk by gastroenterologist Ari Greenspan called The Power of Poop. And it really has nothing to do with this except that it happened in the planetarium. And I really liked his opening line to the talk, which I found the transcript was, Thank you to the wonderful folks here at the American Museum of Natural History to invite me to talk about my passion. Shit. <laughs> he continues, nice. my mother's very proud. <laughs> and so he goes on to talk about bacteria and fecal transplant, which is a, a cool another topic about poop. For but, another day. For another, for another day. day. On a different well, podcast. Yeah. We'll circle back. I had one other cool poop story. And this one actually, um, this ties in very close to home because... Close friends who live in New Jersey live in the school district where this headline appeared: "The poop thickens." <laughs> Mystery That's pooper. So stupid. <laughs> it could have been I the plot it. thickens. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It was right there. I mean, please, please write into you. <laughs> look. This this is whoever writes for NJ.com. So like, we're not we're not dealing with some of the best headline writers. Um, but apparently there was a, a big mystery last year where there's a mystery pooper who would uh, take a poop on a high school oh, track. Yeah. And field. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, and so they were trying to figure out who this guy, he did it like every day. He would leave <laughs> he a little present <laughs> on, a, on a high school track and field. It turns out the man who committed this crime, it is a crime, you should know, yeah. pooping on someone else's track. <laughs> Don't give me an idea. To clarify, we yeah. are not advocating for Yes, within within sight of portable toilets at the Homedale High School <laughs> athletics fields, uh, the man who did this was the superintendent from yeah. the neighboring Kenilworth yeah. School oh, District. I, <laughs> thinking, I yeah. thought it was like the principal or something. Yeah, yeah. right. Insane. And they called him the pooper intendant. Yeah, yeah. This is all like, <laughs> yeah. He wrote about it in his diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I have one last fact about. Um, Icy places, and this one actually very far away from uh, Antarctica, but in Siberia, uh, this actually occurred last year. The research was done and published, uh, but there's a group of Russian scientists that goes uh, and takes ice cores out of the ice, and they took one particular ice core that had a bunch of uh, what they thought were the frozen frozen remains of a roundworm, uh, kind of a nematode creature that lived. Um, 42,000 years ago. And so this lab went through their normal protocol and defrosted the roundworms um, that had numerous samples in it. And to their shock, um, in this sample from the Pleistocene Epoch, two worms woke up. What? Yeah. (laughs) So an estimated age between like 37 and 45,000 years old, these two worms, um, as far as I can tell, are still alive in Russia. And they're the oldest multicellular organisms on Earth. And it's well, just... I, I doubt they're still alive if it happened last year. That's um, true. They, they don't live mm. all that long. I actually have an inside track on this knowledge because actually, I, I mean, it's nothing like 40,000 years or whatever, but um, <laughs> we routinely, nematodes uh, in, the, in a laboratory, you can freeze them just to store them and then thaw them. So that is something that they can definitely do is, is be frozen and then thawed. So it's, you know, maybe it isn't that interesting and you shouldn't have said it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Rob, what do you have for us this week? So this week I learned that a European Space Agency mission named JUICE, which stands for the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, is going to explore Jupiter's moon Europa to explore the particular region, the Connemara Chaos, because every feature on this Greek-named moon circulating a Roman-named planet 
is named after Celtic myths. <laughs> so I thought this was just a really interesting case of nomenclature gone just just horribly like why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the name itself, the Conmar Chaos is named after uh, the rugged hills of Galway in Ireland, and there are these icy rafts um, on the moon Europa. Uh, Europa is one of the, what we call the Galilean moons of Jupiter, and so it was one of the four moons discovered um, in the time of Galileo. Interestingly, um, Galileo did not uh, come up with the names for these moons. Uh, In fact, it was one of his contemporaries who uh, proposed all the names for these, um, Simon Marius. Uh, and so Marius put forth that these moons should be given these uh, these names, and only about 300 years later were those names actually finalized, uh, and not called the Marian moons, but called the Galilean moons, as a slap in Marius's face, I guess. <laughs> uh, so that was one of the first, what was the first sign that the naming of this whole system was going to go to hell? So Jupiter um, is a Roman name. Uh, the planets in our solar system, typically Roman names, but all the moons of, all the major moons, the Galilean moons, are Greek names. Um, but many of the features on Europa are actually Celtic, including its major crater, um, which is named, or which is spelled P-W-Y-L-L, which is a Welsh name, which I believe is pronounced Pwysh. <laughs> <laughs> And please, Welsh listeners, write in and tell me how bad this is. Just by the way, um, other features on other moons are, are named in different mythological traditions. For example, Io's surface features are named after Vedic myths. Mm. Callisto's features are named for um, for things from the Viking mythos. From Ganymede, it looks like it's from like Egyptian gods or Mesopotamian folklore, like Gilgamesh. Oh, cool. So cool. Yeah, so each, I guess, each moon has its own kind of lexicon of, of names they pick from, which in its own way is kind of cool. It's a nice way to kind of tie everything together. And then you would, I suppose, know what moon you're talking about just by naming one of the features. Um, Europa does have several really interesting features, one of which is that it may experience plate tectonics um, similar to the way the Earth does, which would make it a very valuable kind of space model for us to look at. Um, and the other thing that has garnered a lot of attention on Europa is the fact that it may have vast underground uh, reservoirs of water. Even though the moon is um, well below freezing, or the water molecules interacting with other chemicals um, behave in a very interesting way. So as a chemical and kind of physical model, uh, Europa has a lot that it could teach us. Yeah, this is this is really cool. And to learn more about your fact, Rob, I got in touch with friend of the podcast and badass space genius Jessica Noviello oh, um, from an earlier episode, <laughs> because she is a planetary scientist who happens to study, wait for it, Icy Chaos on Europa. Oh. Yeah, this is a big coincidence. And I asked her why Icy Chaos is interesting, and she told me several things. She told me many more than several things, and all of them are interesting, but I've tried to boil it down. Um, (laughs) Firstly, uh, Icy Chaos exists only on Europa, making it interesting why it exists there and nowhere else. Secondly, um, as you hinted at, Europa is an ocean world with a geologically active surface. Um, And she said it's one of the youngest surfaces in the solar system, with some estimates putting it around 70 to 100 million years old. Hmm. So the big reason we think that is that there are so few craters on the surface, despite the fact that other Galilean moons like Io, Ganymede, and Callisto have lots of craters. So Jessica told me, to put it into perspective, it's very possible that what we see on Europa is younger than T-Rex fossils. Thirdly, to describe what icy chaos looks like. Jessica says to imagine dropping a large mirror onto the ground. The mirror would break into lots of irregular pieces, some would rotate, some would flip up. That's what Conamera Chaos looks like. The mirror pieces in real icy chaos are called rafts. I think you mentioned that as well. 
the easiest way to create something that looks like this is to partially melt the area around. Um, and so this allows the surface to break up and causes the rafts to move and then subsequently it refreezes. So Jessica tells me that this requires a heat source and trying to figure out what the, where that heat is coming from is a really big question in her field. But more importantly, heat plus ice equals liquid water and that everywhere we find water on earth, we find life. So this is a really interesting avenue of research for people who are interested in studying whether or not the building blocks of life um, exist elsewhere and could result in life. Hmm. Wow. I also think I see chaos would be a great name for like a, a an energy drink. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, I was thinking a band yeah. too. It would be good. Ooh, We've come with a couple good band names in this podcast. There was another good band name you had earlier. I think it was um, Tears of Orbit. Who had this? Because you said there are multiple tiers of the orbit. Oh. Yeah. And I was like, Tears of Orbit would be one. Yeah. That's very but cool. spelled E A R S. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see chaos and the Tears of Orbit. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we got it. <laughs> well, they're actually. It's it's funny because. Um, another thing we I think we all looked into is the naming conventions for various things. We talked mm. about it a little bit. Um, and juice, as, juice was a particularly bad one. <laughs> no, well that's, those are like backronyms, and we've discussed that on podcasts before, and they're all hilarious and contrived. Um, but I mean, like, on various moons and planets, you know, the basically surface features are all named different things according to different uh, conventions. As we were just talking about certain space-related terms that we think would sound like good bands, I looked down to my list of like Pluto region names, and I just realized that so many of them are really good. Like for example, on Pluto, why do I keep saying that Pluto so weird? I don't know. <laughs> on Pluto, there's a place known as the Cthulhu Macula. What? What? <laughs> um, and Cthulhu is uh, is this like weird godlike figure from an H.P. Lovecraft story. So I was just thinking, as you were saying that, a band name could be H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu Macula. That's amazing. Oh, that's sick. Wait, is Macula mean something besides the, the region in the eye that is really, really focused? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's sort of like a dark region. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm not exactly that sure. I'm sure sense. there's a connection between those two terms. I bet it's that Macula has been used to describe both of them independently. I don't think yeah, that they're okay. saying this is an eye. Although maybe, I'm not sure. Um, uh, Karen, uh, Pluto's moon also has a region named the Mordor Macula. Oh, that's sick. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, and Pluto of course also has, uh, interesting place names that don't, uh, ascribe to any of the other sort of normal naming conventions. Like there's a Sputnik Planitia, uh, and then a Tomba, Regio, Regio, region, basically, uh, named after Pluto's discoverer, Clyde Tomba, who we've talked about mm -hmm. on the podcast before. Friend of the pod, yeah. Yeah. Friend of the podcast, (laughs) Clyde Tomba. Yeah. (laughs) Um, related to that, I was also looking at other interesting naming conventions for uh, planets and their associated bodies. And actually, uh, the moons of Uranus are named after Shakespeare characters, oh. which I thought was pretty neat. Uh, mm. So the first two uh, to be discovered were named Oberon and Titania, both from Midsummer Night's Dream. And then the tradition was carried forward, and now subsequent moons uh, have names like Ophelia, Desdemona, Juliet. Uh, I just thought that was that was kind of neat. Yeah, I found just one account that I thought was kind of funny about Irish names in general, which was that the spelling of Irish names was was really poor throughout history. But apparently there was a family of six, um, and all six were buried in the same cemetery, and they were the uh, the McEnany family, and all of their relatives, as they were buried, spelled their last name differently on the tombstone. <laughs> so there are five different spellings of McEnany, and one that just says bird (laughs) because they believed incorrectly that the name was like some dialect for bird which it is not (laughs) like that was a bird sound (laughs) 
spelling definitely not the strong suit. Um, so I looked a little bit uh, also into uh, generally naming conventions for celestial objects that don't follow any rules, as you were describing. Um, and apparently the naming of minor planets, so small orbiting bodies like dwarf planets and asteroids, is a complete free-for-all, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, so there are a limited set of rules that you have to conform to. Basically, when an asteroid is discovered, it's first given a five-number ID that's derived from the year of its discovery and then two other numbers. And then once confirmed that it has an orbit, so it's a real minor planet, the discoverer has 10 years to pick a name and get it approved by a panel of judges at the International Astronomical Union's Minor Planet Center. Hmm. Uh, so the guidelines they have to follow are actually pretty lax. Um, they can at most be 16 characters, ideally one word, uh, nothing offensive or impossible to pronounce. Um, I, th I found this kind of interesting. Uh, you can't name uh, minor planets after politicians or military personnel unless 100 years have passed since their death or whatever war they were in. So I assume given hmm. concerns um, of their legacy changing over time. And also pet names are strongly discouraged, though as you'll see, uh, they weren't necessarily avoided. Um, so as you can imagine, names of these minor planets come from all sorts of sources then. Real people, fictional people, artists, authors, scientists, entertainers, contest winners, high school teachers, you name it. Literally, you name it. Um, <laughs> so some of my favorites that I encountered, uh, just in combing through a few lists. Uh, so 12818 Tom Hanks and 8353 Meg Ryan uh, are both asteroids who appropriately had a near meet cute uh, when they both made their closest ever approach to the Earth in the same month in 2011, spurring headlines like You've Got Asteroid and Sleepless in Space. <laughs> Another one that I liked a lot was 2309 Mr. Spock which wasn't actually named after the character, but rather after the discoverer's cat, who, per the Minor Planet Center newsletter... Who, per? The ah. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> per. <laughs> Minor Planet. So the newsletter was imperturbable, uh, logical, intelligent, and had pointed ears, much like Mr. <laughs> Spock. <laughs> and my personal favorite that I encountered, I, this might be relegated to musical theater nerds, but that's okay, Asteroid 24601. Appropriately named, <laughs> appropriately named oh. Valjean. <laughs> yeah, Jean Valjean. <laughs> Closing note, um, we named a star after my the principal I had in kindergarten. He retired and when I was in first grade, and we named a star after him. So Thomas Cleary is some five-digit star up there. Aw. Cool. So, to you, Mr. Cleary, wherever you may be. Among the stars. He's <laughs> 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 dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. Now it's my turn. This week I learned that Buzz Aldrin became the first person to imbibe alcohol on another planetary body when he took communion after touching down on the moon. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the story goes, on Sunday, July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11's Eagle Lunar Module touched down on the moon. Um, and instead of bounding right out the door like they wanted to do, Houston actually asked them to hold off to do checks or whatever they do. Um, and as Buzz wrote in his 2009 book, Magnificent Desolation, uh, quote, landing on the moon is not quite the same thing as arriving at grandmother's for Thanksgiving. You don't hop out of the lunar module the moment the engine stops and yell, we're here, we're here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I would, but um, they would not be able to stop me. And that's why they won't send me to space. Um, as it was Sunday, Buzz, a devout Christian, decided it was the right moment to take communion. He ate the bread, drank the wine, and read from the Bible silently to himself. And of this moment of meaningful peace, appropriately located in the sea of tranquility, he wrote, quote, Perhaps, if I had to do it over again, I would not choose to celebrate communion. 
but at the time I could think of no better way to acknowledge the enormity of the Apollo 11 experience than by giving thanks to God. It was my hope that people would keep the whole event in their minds and see, beyond minor details and technical achievements, a deeper meaning, a challenge, and the human need to explore whatever is above us, below us, or out there. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was really amazing. That's beautiful. That's really, yeah. yeah um, so I have a fun fact that also, there was a signed message from Pope Paul VI that was included among many kind of statements and uh, uh, written testaments from world leaders that was put on a silicon disc uh, in the Apollo 11 mission. And so that was placed on the moon. Um, following the mission, a, a, a man named Bishop William Borders, I think that name is particularly fitting. He was the bishop of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orlando. He wrote to the Pope, citing the 1917 Code of Canon Law, uh, saying that since the, space sh- the, the Apollo mission left from Cape Kennedy, the moon was under the, <laughs> the direct uh, kind of ordinance of the Diocese of Orlando. Well. And so, therefore, he is the bishop of the moon. <laughs> that's church law working in your favor. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't find if he got a response or if, if that's actually true. I, like to whatever degree it could be true, but there's been that's the religious claim of the moon is that it's in the Catholic district of Orlando. So, as much as this fact is interesting from you know a religious standpoint, um, mainly I became interested in it because the history of alcohol in space is just really fascinating. Um, so one story I like is that NASA strictly does not allow alcohol on their missions, but it wasn't always that way. Um, in fact, in like the early 70s, when NASA's focus was shifting from you know these, these short moon-focused trips to the possibility of longer-term uh, missions in space, the issue of what the astronauts were going to be eating for these long periods of time uh, started to come up, especially due to the complaints of so many of these uh, astronauts with the quality of the astronaut food. So because of this dissatisfaction with the menu, a revamped menu was among the f- most pressing challenges. Food that was on the Gemini and Apollo programs came in this dehydrated cube or was squeezed out of a pouch and was generally regarded as inedible. Mm. So one of the things they looked into for these long-term stays in space uh, was wine. Um, and at the time, this wasn't really controversial. NASA scientists, you know, looked into it and eventually determined that a sherry would work best because sherry is very stable, um, having been heated during the processing. And it would be the least likely to undergo changes if it were to be repackaged. Unfortunately, astronaut Jerry Carr mentioned the presence of alcohol that uh, being on the menu in a public lecture, and then people got so angry. And they got so many angry letters that they just scrapped the plan and they've never gone back. And they actually have a very strong no alcohol policy for the American astronauts. Way to go, Um, humanity. (laughs) Yeah. But it probably wasn't just due to the prudish teetotalism of the American public at the time. It turns out that when they were testing this uh, in the low-G simulating NASA plane known as the Vomit Comet... (laughs) <laughs> um, the basically the scent of the wine opened up in that situation resulted in a lot of well vomiting. Um, oh. So it probably was not going all that well for this idea to begin with. Um, but there was a time when NASA was seriously considering having a menu that included wine for their longer space missions. However, the Russians, on the other hand, were including cognac in cosmonauts' rations even at the very beginning of the space race. And their doctors alleged that this would stimulate the immune system and generally keep the body well aligned or whatever. Um, it's unclear whether this practice continues to this day, but there are reports that the Russians on ISS have a secret vodka stash. And uh, when an American astro- astronaut was asked about this on a radio show, he just demurred and like repeated that there is no alcohol or NASA forbids alcohol. And a lot of people took that as yes, um, but we don't really know. 
Um, so space might be just a huge party after all. So, <laughs> nice. um, uh, there's also been beer that was brewed on ISS for quote research purposes, although it was only about a milliliter or so. Uh, and there was also beer brewed on earth with yeast that was sent to ISS. In addition, there's a Japanese distillery that sent bottles of their whiskey to space to see what the effects of zero gravity would be on taste, although I genuinely have no idea what that means. <laughs> Finally, there's a distillery that makes a Star Trek-themed vodka called Ten Forward. And if you guys know anything about uh, Star Trek Next Generation, Ten Forward was like the sort of bar on board. Um, and it's made by... Uh, flying a little bit of the alcohol into the mesosphere on a balloon and then mixing it when it comes back down into the rest of the batch. Hmm. So it's it's some of your vodka has been in space. Uh, so actually on the topic of uh, space and alcohol, although you can't drink alcohol on the moon anymore, um, apparently for a brief time you could drink the moon with your alcohol. Um, so this is a creation by uh, Dogfish Head Brewery, um, who we actually mentioned a few episodes ago for their Ancient Ales series. But basically, they formed a partnership with ILC Dover, which is the company that makes spacesuits for NASA astronauts, to make Celeste Jewel Ale. Okay. Um, in Oktoberfest, they brewed with moon dust. So uh, their description of the beer uh, on their website, um, it was made with lunar meteorites that have been crushed into dust, then steeped like tea in a rich multi-Oktoberfest lending the traditional German style a subtle but complex earthiness, or is it moodiness? <laughs> um, so all the press for it that I saw was from 2013, and it was only served at their headquarters in Delaware, so it's probably gone by now. Um, but another kind of cool thing, uh, ILC Dover, the company I mentioned earlier, also made koozies for the beer to be served in using the same materials they put into their spacesuits. That's interesting. Oh, I don't yeah. like. I don't know what made them want to do that, because all the reports from the astronauts who... Like, especially Apollo 17, I think, were the famous ones. Um, but they they all remarked that it all smelled and tasted like gunpowder. And the way they know this is that it just coats everything, like when you're on your spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these pictures of the astronauts with the, you know, like the white spacesuits that look just gray and black because they're just coated with this, you know, like fine, abrasive moon dust. Um, and that when you take, you know, off the stuff back in the capsule that it's just everywhere you could smell it. There's a really strong smell of gunpowder um, and you get it in your mouth. And I think there was at least one who didn't eat it uh, inadvertently, actually like had some of it and said it tasted like gunpowder, which made me kind of wonder how he knew what that yeah. tasted like. <laughs> but I don't know why anyone would want to put that into a beer. Like I know Dogfish Head is like famous for their really interesting beers as we yeah. talked about before. So the description of the taste also from their website at the time uh, is that it tasted of a doughy malt, toasted bread, a subtle caramel, and a light herbal bitterness. Yeah, but all those dust. things So that actually sounds beer. pretty nice. Yeah. Like that, the beer could taste like that without the moon dust. It I like mean, I guess I read the moon dust gravel. made it, gave it a little, that little bit of bitterness sort of. You so I don't they buy it. Might have, they, I mean, they might have steeped it for like 10 seconds. Who knows? <laughs> but point being, you are drinking something. <laughs> <laughs> that once had moon dust. It sounds like really this beer was just a delivery mechanism to get moon dust inside you as quickly as possible. Uh, <laughs> which I just still do not understand the motivation. All right, and with that, it's time for our quiz. So let's start with a quick warm up. Question one What is the closest galaxy to Earth? Um, I mean, we're in the Milky Way. Yeah. But then the next one would probably be Andromeda. Correct. 
The answer is the Milky Way, not Andromeda, because we're in the Milky Way. Oh, wait, you said that. Covering my bases. <laughs> it, was just a, it was just a practiced question to get you guys in the right mindset. Don't get all fancy. Don't get all fancy. You need to answer the question I'm asking, which is, what is the closest galaxy to Earth? You've covered that it's the Milky Way, of course. However, the closest galaxy to our galaxy is Andromeda which is actually very bright and is visible to the naked eye on moonless nights, even in areas with moderate light pollution. It is in the constellation Andromeda, appropriately, whose namesake is notable in Greek mythology for being chained to a rock so that she would be eaten by a sea monster. Question two. How many officially recognized dwarf planets are there in our solar system? Interesting. So a dwarf planet is not an exoplanet. Like, it's its own... I think it's just Pluto. I... No, I think there were more, because there was... Eris, which was the one that was in like 2006 or something, that they thought it was going to be an actual planet, and they were just like, nope, it's a dwarf planet. Oh, is it? Just kidding. So I'll tell you, so Pluto is one, Eris is another. Eris has an even larger mass than Pluto. Oh, okay. And that was one of the things that precipitated the whole reclassification, because they were like, they had already found a lot of things that were on the same sort of general... Uh, scale of Pluto, and then they found one that was bigger, and they were like, "Whoa, whoa, hold on!" Mm. <laughs> Not to mention that Pluto, <laughs> you need to rethink is, Pluto is dwarfed by the size of our moon. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's very small. small. It's little. Yeah. Okay, so at least two. Yeah, there are uh, five. Okay. Was that the answer? <laughs> There are five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I meant to say, we were not, we're not I meant to say two or greater, so we were right. <laughs> yeah, so the answer was two or greater, as you said. It, it's five. Um, and in a sense that you are right, because basically they are Ceres, Pluto, Haumea, Makemake, and Eris. Makemake? Um, yeah. <laughs> nice. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, so Pluto and Sounds Ceres. Like Pluto and Ceres are the only ones that have been observed directly, and so technically are the only ones that we can absolutely confirm um, based on the variety of uh, of characteristics of a dwarf planet that you know, need to be like met in order for it to be classified as such that I didn't totally understand, but you're just going to mm. take my word for it. Um, <laughs> Haumea and Makemake and Eris have only been uh, observed from, from really, really far away um, and that a- appear to have the characteristics of these, but we haven't directly observed them. Um, so they are officially categorized as such. So the answer is two or more. Mm. Yay. So nice. you got it. Yeah. Cool. However, the discoverer of Eris, Mike Brown, criticizes this list of five, stating that a reasonable person might think that this means that there are five known objects in the solar system which fit in the IAU definition of dwarf planet, but this reasonable person would be nowhere close to correct. He maintains a list of 952 objects ranging from, quote, nearly certain to, quote, possible dwarf planets, and estimates of how many dwarf planets we will find when we explore the whole solar system are as high as 10,000, which really makes you think there's a whole lot of stuff in our neighborhood. Wow. wow. Question three. How long does it take light to travel from the sun to the earth? I will let you choose your own plus or minus wiggle room. Okay. I believe it's seven minutes plus or minus 30 seconds. But I, I give you the option to adjust uh, our window. Sure. What's your final answer? Seven minutes plus or minus like, uh, like a minute window. No. <laughs> no, the answer is 8.3 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so you elected for between 6 and 8 minutes inclusive, and you were, I'm sorry, you were just 0.3 minutes off the right answer of 8.3 minutes. Uh, this distance is defined as one astronomical unit. Maybe I should have started with an easier one, like, how long does it take for light to travel one light year? <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. All right. Um, Before before (laughs) we move on, here's a quote about light from the novelist Terry Pratchett. Light thinks it travels faster than anything else, but it is wrong. 
No matter how fast light travels, it finds the darkness has always got there first and is waiting for it. Cool. Question four. What is the difference between a meteoroid, a meteor, and a meteorite? So... Well, one is really buff. (laughs) (laughs) Meteoroid. It has to do with the state of entry into the atmosphere, I think. Um, On the right path. um, Let's see. So meteor is in space. Right, meteorite have crashed to earth i think that part is right okay yes. all right so work backwards from there all right and then a meteoroid is the fragments of a meteor like falling through let me tell you i'll tell you that meteoroid meteor and meteorite are in the correct order from outer space to okay. Earth. okay so so is it the meteoroid belt or there there's like meteoroids in space and then you see meteors as they're burning up in the atmosphere they're the things that are like shooting stars so they're entering the atmosphere okay and then the meteorite is the remains on earth Okay. Right. Yeah. So a meteoroid, as you uh, intimated, is a small rock or particle in orbit around the sun. If a meteoroid enters the Earth's atmosphere, it vaporizes, it becomes a meteor, which is often called a shooting star. Okay. And finally, a meteorite uh, is, is formed when a small asteroid or large meteoroid survives the fiery passage through Earth's atmosphere and lands on Earth's surface. It is then a meteorite. All right, so the next half of the quiz is going to focus on astronauts and their stories. Ooh, okay. okay. So, starting off, question five. We all know about Laika, the Soviet space dog, or as I call her, a posmonaut. (laughs) (laughs) Laika became the first animal to orbit the Earth, but can you name the type of animal that became the first to circle the moon? Oh. I know a monkey was also sent up. Yeah, that seems like an erratic path. And I would Mm. think that this is an Apollo 13 question. Because they had to orbit the moon to slingshot back to Earth, and I think it's a human. Um, I mean, I, I just can't imagine. Would we have bothered to send a worm up to orbit the moon and then come back? Yeah, uh, I can't imagine. So I guess, right, so you, you don't think that it would be an unmanned mission? I just I feel like you, okay. you might need to steer a little bit to, to accomplish that. Fair. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to say okay. human? Sure. Wrong. Ah. The answer is either turtles... Wine flies or Ew. worms. Oh. <laughs> Specifically, mealworms. Stupid um, worms. <laughs> also, on this, were, were sent plants, seeds, bacteria, and other, quote, living matter, which has never been specified. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> what happened, the main one was the turtles, two um, steppe turtles from Russia. So, they, were, they went up on the Soviet Zond 5 spacecraft. Uh, which became the first spacecraft to circle the moon and return to Earth in September 1968. And about a month or so later, the Soviets revealed that Zon 5 had been an ark of sorts containing a variety of organisms, as I said, uh, including two turtles, which had lost about 10% of their body weight, but apparently were just fine after returning to Earth, which is also interesting because um, they basically messed up the re-entry, um, and they were supposed to land in Kazakhstan, but then they like did something weird on re-entry, and they landed in the Indian Ocean, and that kind of impact would definitely have killed humans. Oh. Um, but the turtles were totally fine, along with the flies and the mealworms and the plants and seeds and bacteria. Everybody survived. Um, I, they wanted to see what would happen to animals if they, in this kind of flight, um, particularly because of the radiation they might experience. Mm. Uh, and so there were also stay-at-home control turtles for comparison, um, <laughs> not unlike the, the Scott Kelly and Matt Kelly, the twins mm. where one of them stayed yeah. in space for a year. So that they were the you know space turtle and stay-at-home turtle of today. Huh. Um, and as space historian Amy Shira Titel writes, 
quote, the first living beings to see an earth rise from the moon were communist turtles. <laughs> There's so much in that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Question six. In 2012, Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield became the first person to do what in space? Play guitar? You're on the right track. Okay. Record a video of him playing guitar? I'm going to say that's close enough to be right. Okay. So the answer is to record a song. Oh, okay. uh, And that yeah, song yeah. was called Jewel in the Night. It was using a guitar that had previously been brought to the ISS. Um, so that was the first song ever recorded in space. In uh, 2013, he recorded a version of David Bowie's Space Oddity, yeah, which did. actually prompted a piece in The Economist analyzing the legality of publicly performing a copyrighted work while in Earth orbit. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> turns out it's very complicated. <laughs> um, but he actually asked permission, and it was all set up beforehand, and actually it was... A, uh, a collaboration with um, one of Bowie's bandmates. So mm. it was all above board. Um, but it actually is a complicated issue if you want to read that Economist piece. Um, and also, I think very recently, he's released an album of songs that he recorded. Question seven. While on the surface of the moon, unaware that they could be heard back on Earth, Apollo 16 astronaut John Young complained profanely to crewmate Charlie Duke about what? Oh. Oh, what would you complain about? The issues that you would have. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. It's dark. I miss my dog. Rob, can you focus on the quiz? (laughs) (laughs) Um. Can we get? Can we get a? I feel like it's just so dumb. A hintlet, a a baby hint. I've got to take a shit. I feel like that's it. That is it. Yeah. (laughs) It was. It wasn't quite that, um, but it was his epic flatulence. (laughs) (laughs) And remember earlier, not just in the quiz right there, but when you said Neil Armstrong probably needed emodium. Yeah. I said this will come back later. And then you guys mentioned it during trying to answer the question. Um, So essentially, during Apollo 15, two astronauts had suffered from irregular heartbeats due to an insufficiency of potassium. So NASA sent Apollo 16 up with potassium-fortified citrus drinks they were instructed to pound. The transcript (laughs) reads hilariously as follows. Young, I have the farts again. (laughs) I got them again, Charlie. I don't know what the hell gives them to me. I mean, I haven't eaten this much citrus fruit in 20 years. And I'll tell you one thing, in another 12 fucking days, I had never eaten any more. <laughs> At which point, Houston radios in and says, Okay, John, uh, we have a hot mic. <laughs> and John Young says, How long we had that? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I have the parts again. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such an amazing human moment and like one of the most yeah. extraordinary achievements the human has ever you know walking on the surface of the moon just was there anything for that like could a spacesuit handle that or were you just screwed <laughs> were you in like the dutch oven of all dutch ovens <laughs> Exhaust built in for that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Oh. Moving on, I say. Okay. <laughs> and for our last question, who was the first woman in space? Okay. Her first name in space. Her first name is Valentina. I think it's a cosmonaut. Can't. Yes. I'm not going to pull this last name, but you can make up a Russian sounding last name. <laughs> 
It might start with a Y. <laughs> Pedroskovich. So your answer is Valentina Pedroskovich. <laughs> that's that's my inclination. If you have anything else, I would like to. No, you gave I'm... the correct first name. I'm how about this? Ma- I'm made up a la- Russian surname. For our last question, Teamwork. what was the first name of the first woman in space? Yes, <laughs> Valentina. The answer is Valentina. Her Yay. full name is Valentina Tereshkova. Tereshkova. Aww. Yes. Okay. And so... Potato, potato. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Petroskovich, Tereshkova, whatever. Yeah. Um, in 1963, the Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space and remains the youngest woman to go to space at 26 years old Damn. and is the only woman to have made a solo space flight. All this 20 years before the U.S. sent their first woman astronaut, Sally Ride, into space, who didn't mm. even get to be the first person to fly to space twice because the Soviets had already sent Svetlana Savitskaya in 1982 and 1984. To be fair on the U.S., 47 out of the 61 women who have ever been to space were American. And since their first two, the Russians have only ever sent two more. And the last two NASA astronaut classes uh, in 2013 and 2017 have been exactly or very nearly gender equal with four out of eight and five out of 12 women, respectively. Um, And these classes will be eligible to become the first to travel to Mars. And quite pleasingly, the name given to the 2017 class, the Turtles. Hey! Yay! That's great. (laughs) All, All of that's just great. Cool. Uh, so, as we end this episode all about space, I leave you with the last words spoken by a human on the moon. Gene Cernan, commander of the Apollo 17 mission, said, quote, And, as we leave the moon at Taurus Litro, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. And then, according to Cernan, he said, All right, let's get this mother out of here. and with that that's our show thanks again to Jessica Noviello you can find out more about her work on Europa's icy chaos as well as her ongoing efforts to educate the public about space stuff and dinosaurs on her Twitter at Jessica Noviello and don't forget to get in touch with us to let us know what you think and to share your own facts with us on Instagram and Twitter at FactsMachinePod and on Facebook at FactsMachinePodcast until next time Thanks, Emily. What do you... Uh, no. All right. Thanks, Emily. Um, what? <laughs> thanks, Emily. All right, Rob, what do you have for this? All right. Thanks, Emily. I'm going to do it one more time. All right. Thanks. No. Why is it... Okay. I'm really upset with this. I'm literally <laughs> hiding myself. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs>